Well, hi, everyone. Welcome. In 1979, members of the Ku Klux Klan entered our church in southern Kentucky. They stood in the aisles around the perimeter of our sanctuary with holstered pistols and lowered rifles. They were there to intimidate because we were hosting a racial reconciliation meeting in our segregated town, in our building. That was 44 years ago, just 10 years after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That was a time when some local stores in our town had pictures of lynchings on the wall behind the cash registers. A time when I lost people in my congregation because I was willing to marry interracial couples. That was 44 years ago. And now I'm confused. I'm going to work through that confusion in this episode and reveal one of the best ways to defeat bigotry. Hi, I'm Doug Newton, pastor for 45 years, a national award-winning magazine editor, author of 24 books, and this is At the Intersection with Doug Newton, where scripture, culture, and character meet. And I'm here to help you pursue the kind of character needed to align with scripture faithfully and to engage culture graciously. Now, each week, I make one observation about our culture. I give one insight from the Bible that speaks to that issue, and then I suggest one way to strengthen the character that you and I need to relate to our mixed-up world with exemplary grace and fresh impact. This is a no-gripe zone. Our question is not, what's wrong with our culture? It's about what's the right way to respond. So you ready? Here we go. Are you as confused as I am about racism in America? I mean, on the one hand, many people talk as if racism is more pandemic than COVID. On the other hand, everywhere I go, I see evidence of so much improvement in race relations over the years in America. I understand the reluctance of many people to acknowledge this evidence because to do so might lead to uh, that's good enough complacency and and deny that more progress is still needed today. But it seems to me that it would help all the way around to hear messages that sound more like a locker room talk from a coach whose team is ahead at halftime than scolding by a coach whose team is way behind. Regardless, I mean, we all can do better and more to heal wounds and to prevent injustices. But where to begin? Well, in 1954, Gordon Allport published his groundbreaking work, The Nature of Prejudice, which has influenced all thought and strategies to combat prejudice and racism since that time. Many of those efforts were based on his contact hypothesis. Uh, His hypothesis goes this way. Intergroup contact under appropriate conditions can effectively reduce prejudice between majority and minority group members. Now, hundreds of experiments have been conducted over the years to test that hypothesis and determine what constitutes appropriate conditions. Among other things, (laughs) one thing it became clear, you can't force people into contact through legislation, or animosities and prejudices will likely be reinforced rather than reduced. Now, 
what they found is there has to be some superordinate goal, that is, a goal that two divided or segregated groups can share for mutual benefit, a superordinate goal. And there is evidence that approaches like this can work to some degree, but they're not guaranteed. Nor are they, in my estimation, the ultimate answer. Because, again, in my estimation, prejudice is not the source cause of racism. In order to discover the source cause of racism, we need to go upstream to get to the headwaters of racism and take action there. And here's what we find. This river includes way more isms than just racism. There's classism, sexism, ageism, nationalism. But just keep going farther up and you will see the source of all the isms is bigotry. No doubt prejudice is a powerful current in that river of isms, but the source of the water itself is bigotry. The origin of the word bigotry is uncertain, but most etymologists trace it back to the phrase, by God, something people would say in a moment of immovable defiance. You may want me to do what you say, but by God, I won't. The possible German origin, in fact, is the words, by God. So that's why Merriam-Webster defines bigotry as the obstinate or intolerant devotion to one's own opinions and prejudices. See, there's more to bigotry than prejudice. So you can't fix bigotry by simply attacking the issue of prejudice. Bigotry is about being obstinate, about being obstinate about your opinion using selectively and conveniently whatever you can grab to support your opinion. You know, during the pandemic, people on all sides of the issue kept claiming arrogantly, I follow the science. And it was arrogance on all sides. All the sides were saying that. And to make that point, I really wanted to get a t-shirt custom made that said, I follow the science in big letters, and then beneath it, my science is better than your science, or my science eats your science for lunch. (laughs) Because, see, all the sides used research and statistics that supported what they wanted to believe to justify their convictions and, and actions. Bigotry is the issue. Bigotry uses prejudice, but it also uses selective evidence. Bigotry also uses informal fallacies to buttress our obstinate opinions, fallacies like red herring, straw man, question begging, false dichotomies. Now, if you don't know those fallacies, you do well to look them up online. Just Google informal fallacies. You'll see a lot of information to help you begin to recognize them. Because and I don't have time to cover those now. You know, over the time, we'll probably, as I already have, covered a couple of the informal fallacies in past episodes. But the fact is, we all use them from time to time without even knowing it. That's why it's important to be able to recognize them so that you can stop using informal fallacies. But the point is that bigotry is kind of the overall master. Prejudice only serves that master. 
That's why bigotry has to be the target of our concern, whether we're talking about racism or classism or sexism or, or whose coffee is better. <laughs> we can work all we want against racism, but bigotry will just raise its head somewhere else. It's like playing whack-a-mole. Obstinate devotion to personal opinion happens everywhere, and it divides people. So how do we battle bigotry? Of course, the ultimate answer is that human beings need to have the inclinations of their heart changed because that's ultimately where bigotry comes from. This arrogant obstinacy must be defeated from the inside out by a work of, as I believe as a Christian, God's Spirit. However, all people, regardless of their religious beliefs, can have some degree of success by attacking bigotry from the outside in, that is, through human effort. Uh, and the reason is because all people, all people, again, no matter what your religious belief, have some amount of moral strength to control impulses that they know are wrong or not good or beneficial. And then, even people who believe in spiritual transformation, as I do, still need to cooperate with God's inner work through controlling old habits, like bigoted thinking. That's why the Apostle Paul urged the transformed people in his churches still to take this outside-in approach of human effort and to, as he said, put off the old self with its habits and to put on the new self. And there in Ephesians 4, he gave three examples. He said, uh, you can put off falsehoods and put on the truth. You should put off stealing and put on useful work. You should put off unwholesome talk and put on encouraging words. And even though he was, get this, he was writing to people who had been renewed by God's Spirit, he still told them to make the necessary effort to, as he said, get rid of all bitterness. It, it, it put the word you in front. You should get rid of all bitterness. Not God. You get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Ephesians 4.31. And bigotry is one form of malice. So there's always a place for good old human effort to be and to do what's right. To do things like attack and weaken the power of bigotry in our lives and society takes human effort. So how would we do that? Well, let's take a cue from Sun Tzu. He's the famous 6th century B.C. military strategist and philosopher, and in his classic writings called The Art of War, he wrote about the element of surprise. Here's what he said. In conflict, direct confrontation will lead to engagement, and surprise will lead to victory. Those who are skilled in producing surprises will win. That can be our approach to helping to defeat bigotry, the element of surprise. So how do you surprise bigotry? Well, you do something, you say something, or you just be something that bigotry would never expect. See, if bigotry is the obstinate and intolerant devotion to one's own opinion and prejudice, then bigotry 
will have to see some undeniable contradictory evidence forcing a person to have to rethink their opinion. This is exactly, when you come to think about it, what God had to do numerous times to deal with his people's obstinate opinions. Like when the early Christians, even after Pentecost, even after the Holy Spirit had filled them, <laughs> would not associate with Gentiles and share the gospel with them. God had to create supernatural surprises to wrench people like even Peter, who gave the Pentecost sermon full of the Holy Spirit, to wrench Peter away from his bigotry. But we don't have supernatural powers in our bag of tricks. So in order to budge bigoted people, we have to count on surprising people over and over and over again. Just as a hundred piranhas rip away small pieces of flesh at a time, many pieces of contradictory evidence can eat the flesh off of prejudiced opinions. And you know, if that happens to a person enough, they might, just might, not only change their obstinate opinion itself, but even become less obstinate. I mean, really, all that needs to happen to begin to nudge bigotry out of the way, to weaken bigotry, is to get a person to say, well, this is the way I see things, but I could be wrong. I mean, that's nudging them toward humility. So, I recommend taking this approach. Be on the lookout to surprise people. You know, if you're a Christian these days, the average person expects you to be a judgmental hypocrite. So, rather than getting up in arms and offended about, surprise them by doing the exact opposite. Be careful not to come off as judgmental. And by all means, guard yourself carefully against hypocrisy. Now, me, <laughs> I'm an old white male old. I mean, I'm going to be 70 in a couple weeks, and anybody under 30 sees me as old. Under 40 sees, under 50 sees me as old. So, in other words, I start out with three strikes against me. Against me. I am old, so most people assume I'm going to be stuck in my ways and crotchety. I'm white, so most people are going to assume I'm blindly and arrogantly privileged and racially insensitive. I'm male, so that means, in many people's estimation, that I'm power-hungry, bullheaded, and have a low view of women as weak, emotional, and illogical. And when you put all three together, all those categories, my age, my race, my gender, <laughs> old white male, I am now a member of the most vilified people group in America and the current target of blame for everything wrong with everything everywhere. <laughs> you think I'm exaggerating? I track these things online, and it really is true. I mean, just the other day, I saw a video uh, by a highly educated person arguing that the social pattern of eating three meals a day, just, just the whole idea of eating three meals a day, was left over from colonialism and white racism, which is just a euphemistic way of blaming old white males, right? Examples like this abound on the internet. Now, in response, I can either get offended. How 
dare you lump me into one category and falsely accuse me? Or I can take this on as a challenge to surprise people. Regardless, I do want to say it's definitely time for all of us to stop being offended so easily. Even when people say what people say is inherently offensive, we don't have to take offense, do we? <laughs> I mean, that's our choice, isn't it? Yes, it is. And Jesus taught and lived by by a principle that we should not be offended and retaliate in any way when people insult, mistreat, or even falsely accuse us. We are to rejoice, turn the other cheek, keep our mouth shut. And that takes humility. I mean, in, in recent years, I've been in two intense situations where my old white maleness led people to assume things about me that were simply unfair, that I would um, not have passion for racial reconciliation and diversity. They didn't know me. They didn't know what I had been involved in over the years. And they also believe that because I'm an old white male, I'd have no clue or compassion about the treatment of people in the gay, gay community. But rather than get offended, I have to humbly remind myself that I can wander unwittingly close to bigotry if I'm not careful. Like, for example, I understand old people like me can easily pigeonhole young people these days. <laughs> That's why I am so thankful that God brought Derek into my life and Margie's life about three and a half years ago. A series of events with a small group led us to having him over for dinner weekly. Uh, for more than two years, he came to our house on Thursday nights for dinner. And then we finally had to move to another city for a ministry assignment, but we still travel an hour monthly to share a meal. I mean, he's become like a son to us, or, or <laughs> I should say a grandson, yeah. He is the most remarkable, and, and I don't say this lightly, he is the most remarkable young man we have ever met. In junior high, he took Spanish, but kept teaching himself even after graduating from his urban public school. He is an accomplished boxer. Let me turn this on for you. He is an accomplished boxer. There he goes. Um, he trains hard, diligently. He is so dedicated and skilled in what he does. He competes and wins and uh, brings a witness for the Lord when he does. He reads multiple books a month. This is his game plan always. And he writes, get this, we didn't tell him to do this. He writes reflection papers after he finishes each book so that it'll sink in even better summarizing them. Books on financial investment, business, Bible study, theology, psychology. He is a vigorous learner. He sets goals. He disciplines himself. He's always thinking about how to serve God and others. He works long and hard at his job as a wood floor refinisher. Derek has been a wonderful, helpful, 
and definitely a God-given surprise for Margie and me about young people. So I don't believe we were all that bigoted, but I think our minds and hearts tended to lump young people into a category. But he has been such a surprise that reminds us every time we look across the table at his bright eagerness, that all around us are people, young and old, perspectives that are familiar or foreign, beliefs that are unknown or untested, that will surprise us away from obstinate opinions toward a more humble openness. Surprises. (laughs) That's what eats bigotry for lunch. You know, you can be creating surprises for people all around you as well. And that will help defeat bigotry. So I've written another crosswalk for you this week, like I do every week. Uh, this free download that you can get. The link is going to be at the last uh, slide on the on this video, and 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 it's going to help you, as all the crosswalks do, uh, think reflectively about some of the things that I've been talking about, and about particularly in this case where you might create the element of surprise. And so what I've done in this in this crosswalk is to give you an opportunity to to look at at least three categories where you might be pigeonholed in your life based on age or sex, education, appearance, um, you know, your your social standing, your occupation, all of these things are ways in which people can get pigeonholed. And then I ask you to to actually write down three things that people might assume about you because you're in that particular category. And then after you look at that, that you, you go, so if that's the case, then what might I do to surprise people? Just to have that in my mind and kind of be intentional about looking for those opportunities. So there you have it. Another week, another episode. If you appreciate what I'm trying to do in this podcast, would you share it with your friends? And and please subscribe to my Fresh Impact YouTube channel. In 24 hours, I'll have the permanent version up on YouTube. Uh, An audio version is available every week also within 24 hours for people that want to listen on the go. And all that information about the podcast, past and future, can be found on our website. All the links are at the end of this video. So thanks again so much for tuning in. If you think this podcast is a valuable resource and, and, and hope that it's going to continue, hey, would you leave me a comment? I'm getting some good ones. Send me an email. And remember, August is going to be guest month when I'm going to be interviewing some amazing people who are worth admiring. Because admiration, as we've already talked about in past episodes, is probably the greatest instrument for shaping your character. And you're going to be fascinated and inspired by the lives of these people and their character. So thanks so much again for tuning in. I'd love to hear from you. Uh, If you have some thoughts about what you might like me to address as I look at our culture, I'm already looking forward to next week on the topic of connecting with God in a culture that's confused about intimacy. So I hope you'll join me again next week at the intersection with Doug Newton. And remember, go out there and surprise some people.